From the beginning of time, the kingdom of God has been wrestling with the kingdom of this world. From the Tower of Babel challenging God's authority, or Moses' standoff against Pharaoh crying out to let his people go so they may worship the one true God, even Jesus, even Jesus wrestled with um, or was put to death by the Jewish elders and by the Roman government. This ongoing struggle uh, that we see is nothing new, and it shouldn't come as a surprise. Even today, we, we see the same struggle. For instance, uh, our brothers and sisters in China are being severely persecuted by the government. They uh, will be jailed three years for having a Bible study or house church. I mean, they can't even watch online streaming services there because of the censorship that is happening. How about in America, where we're seeing secularism wage war against our nation's Christian heritage? Some go as far to wanting to destroy religious statues and erase that past. But before we sink into despair or resign ourselves to defeat over the world's current situation, we should strengthen ourselves with this amazing promise. It comes from Revelation 11.15. The seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. So this has been happening, this is currently happening, and it will ultimately be fulfilled in its entirety at the end of the age. It's what Daniel saw in a vision, a stone not made with human hands crushing a huge statue that represented the most powerful empires in the world. So this gives me hope and it encourages me not to just be a passive onlooker or uh, someone on the sidelines, but to be active participants in transforming our world. But the key to transforming our world is understanding the spiritual conflict that has been raging on for thousands of years. It's a battle between fear and love. That might sound strange at first, but let me explain. Fear is a great and terrible weapon. It empowers the world system. It's willed in order to control, to manipulate, to ultimately dominate people. On the other hand, God's love is the greatest weapon we possess as believers. And when we use his love to bring reconciliation, to bring peace into a situation, uh, to share joy, and to promote freedom. While fear is used for control, God's love doesn't seek to control others, but to empower them to godly living. And we're going to see this age-old battle between fear and love played out in today's passage. And I hope by understanding the past, we can create a better future. So if you have your Bibles, turn to me to 1 Samuel 8. We're beginning at verse 1. And this is a time where uh, God's people are debating or they're um, demanding of Samuel that they want a king. So let's read this. As Samuel grew up, he appointed his sons to be judges over Israel. Joel and Abijah, his oldest sons, held court in Beersheba. But they were not like their father, for they were greedy for money. That's a key verse. 
They accepted bribes and perverted justice. Finally, all the elders of Israel uh, met at Ramah, discussed the matter with Samuel. They said, look, they told him, you're now old and your sons are not like you. Give us a king to judge us like all the other nations have. So Samuel was his great prophet. He had been ruling Israel for as long as he lived, yet in his old age, he would have to pass the baton and most likely to his sons. Yet what we learn from verse 30 is they were not like his father, who was righteous. They were greedy for money. They did not follow the the footsteps of, of righteousness, yet instead they just wanted to make a quick buck. When injustice uh, in the courts and taking bribes are happening, uh, any society is doomed. And so I could see why the elders were concerned. Yet, instead of inquiring of the Lord, they, they came up with a better idea. They, they thought to themselves and, and murmured to themselves, let's, let's have a king. Why don't we have a king like the other nations? What they're saying, I don't know if you catch it or caught it, but what they're saying is we don't want to be led by God through a spiritual leader like a prophet or a judge. We want a centralized political system with a king sitting on top, right? Kind of the ultimate idea of a pyramid scheme. I'm kind of joking, but serious. So their idea was instead of being under God's control and under his leadership, they they would give a person God-like control to rule over the entire nation, which is ironic because their ancestors were slaves under Pharaoh. Right, This God king who sat on the throne and you had to do whatever he said. So, I don't get this, but they wanted to exchange God leaderships for a man. And frankly, I can't think of a worse case of idolatry. And it was all being driven by fear. They thought, well, what if Samuel's crooked sons took over? Right? We'll be ruined. Uh, who's going to lead us? What will we do? Instead, they should have thought, has God ever abandoned us or failed to raise a prophet or a judge to lead us in a time of need? And yet they were persistent, and we're going to see that. Even God knows that this is a horrible idea. See, anytime we put a, a person in place of God, it, it just never turns out right. And so he warns the elders. This is what he says through Samuel. So Samuel was displeased with their request and went to the Lord for guidance. Do everything they say to you, the Lord replied. What? For they are rejecting me, not you. They want me to be, they don't want me to be their king any longer. Ever since I brought them from Egypt, they have continually abandoned me and followed other gods. And now they're giving you the same treatment. That's harsh. Do as they ask, but solemnly warn them about the way a king will reign over them. That's the key, and we're going to see that, how a king will reign over them. You can almost uh, sum the entire Old Testament as God's people rejecting him, and the New Testament as God's response to that rejection through Jesus. And because God isn't a control freak, he's, he's going to allow them to get what they want. I don't know if you understand this, but God doesn't want to control us. Instead, he, he wants us to have something called self-control. Unfortunately, when we run our lives without 
God's leadership, we're going to face the consequences. And Samuel is going to address this. This is what he's going to tell them. And, and these are very severe consequences. So Samuel passed, and pick up in verse 10, so Samuel passed on the Lord's warning to the people who are asking him for a king. This is how a king will reign over you, Samuel said. The king will draft your sons and assign them to his chariots and his charioteers, making them run before his chariots. It sounds tiring. Some will be generals and captains in his army. Some will be forced to plow in his fields and harvest his crops. Some will make his weapons and the chariot equipment. The king will take your daughters from you and force them to cook and bake and make perfumes for him. I don't know if you ladies would want to do that. Probably not. He will take away the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his officials. He'll take a tenth of your grain and your grape harvest and distribute among his officers and tenants. He'll make your male and female slaves and, and demand the finest of your cattle and donkeys for his own use. He'll demand a tenth of your flocks and you will be his slaves. And this is the key part. When that day comes, you will beg for relief from this king that you're demanding. But then the Lord will not help you. But their people refuse to listen to Samuel's warning. Even so, we still want a king, they said. We want to be like the nations around us. Our king will judge us and he'll lead us in battle. So Samuel repeated to the Lord what the people had said. And the Lord replied, do as they say and give them a king. And Samuel agreed and sent the people home. Wow, this is a major turning point in Israel's history. Even though God solemnly warns them through Samuel, they are completely sold, hook, line, and sinker. God even outlines the consequences, and yet they're still choosing to go down this path. And this may not be a popular idea today, but it's actually loving to warn someone uh, that we care about, or if you care about, if they're going to make a really bad decision. You know, they may not uh, like or even want your input, but at least you did your, their, uh, did your part uh, to warn them. And boy, does God lay out a warning. I want to kind of break this down for us and really um, kind of see this. This is a long list of consequences. But if we look back to verse 11, um, this is how a king will reign over. He'll draft your son. So, Number one is army conscription, right? The, the king is going to draft your sons for military service to, to fight and die in wars. That sounds like fun. Number two, force exercise. This is kind of a joke, but, you know, it's in there. Uh, he's going to make them run before his chariots. So for you um, in quarantine, if you think running on a treadmill is bad, try running in front of a chariot with horses. That doesn't sound very pleasant. Number three, uh, in verses 12 and 13, it outlines servitude, right? You're going to be forced to plow his fields. You're going to harvest his crops, make his weapons, uh, cooking and baking, making perfumes. So you have all those things. So essentially state-run industries. Uh, number four is state real estate. The king is going to seize the best properties. There's a really good story of that in uh, Kings about uh, King Ahab and Naboth's vineyard, if anybody's interested in reading the story of, of that coming to fruition. And also, too, I'm a fan of Monopoly, but if you think Monopoly 
destroys friendships. Let's just try that on a national level. That sounds like mayhem. Number five is taxes. They weren't paying taxes before. They were just um, giving offerings to the temple. But now uh, the consequence is they're going to pay a 10% in their income, right, through agriculture. Which that doesn't sound too bad. I'm, I'm sure some of us today would would want to pay 10%. But the problem with taxes is that it doesn't seem to um, stay at the same rate. It always increases for some reason. And lastly, or second to last, is slavery. This is not a good thing. And, and I've even read online and people saying, you know, Bibles, uh, slavery in the Bible wasn't as bad as uh, slavery in the last few centuries in America. And what's kind of funny about that, I don't want to get too much into that, is that the people saying this haven't actually been slaves themselves. Now, I don't care what someone calls it. You can call it feudal peasantry, indentured servitude, bond servitude, forced labor, conscription, chattel slavery, sex slavery, debt slavery. The point of the matter is it's probably not too great being owned or even partially owned by someone else. It's not a good thing, right? I mean, I think of all the young people, kind of on a side note, and the amount of debt that this country has uh, accumulated and how we as the taxpayers have to bear that, that burden. So in a way, that's kind of debt slavery in the modern century. So really, slavery hasn't been abolished. It just kind of changed it a little bit. But that's on a side note. And lastly, this is the scariest part. Uh, I call this all sales are final. God is not going to help them when they, when they walk down this road. You know, he's like, you're on your own, right? When you're going to um, kind of deny my leadership and raise up your own leaders, well, you're going to have to face the consequences. And even when they're oppressing you, I'm, I'm not going to help you because I, I'm giving you this choice right now. When we do things God's way, he's responsible for the consequences. But when we have it our way, then we're going to have to uh, share in the burden of those consequences. I know what maybe some of you are thinking right now. You may be thinking, oh boy, you know, that sounds like us today. What, what should we do about it? Before you go leading a coup or revolution or, or fighting another bloody civil war, I want you to remember a few things that number one, Israel, or I mean, America isn't the Israel in past times. And number two, all sales are final. See, when we go down that path, like I said, of trusting more in human leadership than God's, well, we can't reverse that very easily, right? I mean, it's going to have to take an act of God, like the, the 10 plagues of Egypt or when Jesus comes back to rule and reign on Zion. Let's also keep in mind that um, Jesus said in the Gospels, in order to give us some balance here, he said, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. Even Paul writes in Romans and Titus to um, remind the believers to submit to the government and its officers. They should be obedient, always ready to do what is good. We all live in this duality of of being citizens of heaven, right, and serving the kingdom of God, but we also are living in the kingdoms of this world. There's this duality in that. And we have to learn how to, in a sense, walk in two worlds. So 
what are we going to do? Like I said, we're in a war between two kingdoms, an earthly one and a spiritual one, uh, between two forces, between fear and love. We have the choice to, to partner with either fear and, and make our decisions and make our plans based on fear, on the what-ifs or on the things that could or possibly happen or, or not, or we get to partner with God um, in his love by spreading peace, hope, and joy. It's God's love on the cross that has the power to set the captives free and to bring light to the darkness. There are millions of people today, millions, who are held captive by false religion, uh, held captive to the idolatry of the state, held captive to the allure of money or power or pleasure or to entertainment to worldly lusts or forbidden passions. We, the ecclesia, God's church, his, we represent the kingdom and we're his legislative branch here on earth to break the spiritual cycle of captivity. And I believe there's still hope. Now, as I was uh, studying, I really believe that this is for us uh, today. It's from Joel 2. And it's a people who were facing crisis, and yet they turned to God. And, and God is, is, in a sense, telling them what to do. And I believe this is for us today. And this is the Lord. He says, turn to me now while there's time. Give me your hearts. Come with fasting, weeping, and mourning. Don't tear your clothing in your grief, but tear your hearts instead. Return to the Lord your God, for he is merciful and compassionate, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. He's eager to relent and not punish. And this is the key part. Who knows, perhaps he'll give you a reprieve, send you a blessing instead of this curse. Wow. I mean, I, I hope today that we would see um, these curses lifted and the blessings, uh, the blessings restored. And I believe we, what, what, um, what we're facing today and how we're supposed to fight is through prayer. I don't know if you know this, but five minutes of prayer will accomplish more than five hours of debate or argument on social media, right? I know there's a lot of uh, us out there, we, we're on social media or, or even watching a lot of news, but I guarantee you five minutes of prayer will do more than spending time on social media and spending time uh, watching the news. It's, it's not going to help us because we're not in a physical battle, we're in a spiritual one. Also, what we're doing at Journeys, we're doing this 300 prayer challenge. Uh, we believe that we can break through this power of darkness by our combined prayers, right? And not just praying one time, but, but a persistent prayer, a fervent prayer, like James talks about. And now more than ever, our country and our world, they need our prayers. Some of the things that we can pray for is praying for our government leaders that they don't make decisions based on fear, right? How many decisions right now are being made based on fear? Um, and truthfully, they're human like us. They need encouragement, they need grace, and they need godly wisdom. Pray for our courts to uphold justice and, and help everyone that they can. I mean, there's been more evil that, have been, that has been allowed in our court systems um, than through anywhere else. But that's a secondary note. Pray for our hospital workers who continue to fight in 
find cures for this virus. Pray for small business owners who and their employees who've, who've taken a huge financial hit. Some of these businesses are in huge debt, right? And they don't know how to climb out of it. Uh, pray for people receptive to the, the message of, of Christ, which has the power to, to save. And lastly, pray for the unity of our nation. No amount of fighting will actually bring us closer to peaceful reconciliation. And so I thank you guys for, for, um, for listening, for tuning in. And I, I really hope that you guys really consider and sign up for this 300 prayer challenge. I know I'm a part of it. And so many, so many of you have signed up for this because I just believe that God's going to do something so amazing. So let me just pray uh, for us as we close. Father, I know that what we see on the news and we see in the world and, and things are chaotic and we don't get it. But Lord, you see the whole picture, Lord. And we just, we just encourage ourselves with that promise, Lord, that the kingdoms of this world will be transformed into the kingdom of your beloved son, that you're going to rule and reign, God. And right now, I pray that we would stand up, that we would pray, Lord, that we would fall on our knees and do that, Lord. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless.